The scripture passage for this morning is found in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. Good morning. We are nearing the end of our sermon series in 2 Timothy, looking at finishing and starting well. And we've been looking at how Paul, who knows his imprisonment will end in death, advises and encourages Timothy for ministry. And today's passage is Paul's summary statement on his life. And it's meant to encourage us in the trajectory that we are meant to be on, we need to be on. Uh, before I say more, let me, let's read the passage again. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A few weeks ago, we looked at how Paul tells Timothy in chapter 2. He said three things. He said, endure suffering as a farmer, train as an athlete, and work hard as a farmer. Did I say endure suffering as a soldier? I didn't say that right. Well, okay. So now Paul here says, I've fought the good fight. I've won the race. And I've kept the faith. Paul is saying, I finished well. And he's saying, Timothy, I'm looking back on my life. And I can honestly say, I've done the things I've told you to do. And what I've told you, this is tested advice. I've lived it first. Since we spent the last few weeks looking at how Paul advised Timothy, what it meant to run the race, To fight the good fight, I want to focus today on being poured out. Interestingly, years earlier, when Paul was writing to the Philippians, he was remarking about running the race for them, and he said, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul has run this race. He's finished his life knowing that he might be poured out, and now he is. And we're going to unpack what being poured out means. So we're going to look at three things. What being poured out means, why be poured out, and how we can do it. So what, why, and how. Um, Before we jump in, let's pray. God, we pray that you would guide us at this time, that you would pour out your spirit Um, on our ears and our hearts, to hear your word um, and to take them to heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so first, what does it mean? Notice when Paul talks about being poured out, he isn't just referring to his point of death. I mean, clearly his death is part of it. But he says he is already being poured out. So what's going on? The entirety of of the Christian life is carrying our cross and following Jesus. Every day we lay down our lives. 
We lose our lives to find them. We lay down our lives in sacrifice, service, and love. And for Paul, that meant he did everything to share the gospel. He laid down his life. Beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks. He was abandoned. He was slandered. He was opposed. He walked away from his previous career and privileges. But Paul, he laid down his life. Everything was submitted to the call of sharing the gospel. Everything. Comfort, wealth, health, career, family was submitted to following Jesus because he was saved, not to save himself. And what does that mean for us? It means the whole trajectory of our Christian life must be pouring out. In everything, we must be willing to be poured out in order to follow Jesus. And so we should, when possible, we should actively choose the more radical option, the more costly option, the option that imposes more of a burden for us to sacrifice, serve, and to love. And you might say, well, not everybody's called to Paul's life. That's true. But we all are called to let Jesus pour us out, however he wills. And so always and everywhere, the trajectory of our lives is we seek for Jesus to fill us up so he can pour us out. Because our lives are not our own. We were bought with a price. And so if Jesus calls us to lay down our lives, we will. So practically, if the entire trajectory of our life is to lay down our lives, to be poured out, let me just look at a few concrete examples. So first, your money is not your own. If you're being poured out with your finances, then the Christian perspective isn't, well, I'll be generous on the side, or I'll be generous with, you know, this amount, but the rest, that's mine. The Christian perspective is every single dollar is God's. Our bank accounts and our wallets are filled up so that God can pour them out for his service. So our mindset can't be, I'll give 10% away, and then the other 90%, ka-ching, that's for me, whatever I want to do. Our mindset is, I will be financially responsible so that I can sacrifice, serve, and love, and honor you, Jesus, however you call me. So that might mean God wants you to give more, or spend more generously on others, or it might mean cut your spending so that you're not in trouble. And here's a, here's a helpful tip. If you aren't sure what your priorities are, we'll just follow the money. So in economics, we have this idea. It's called revealed preference. Nothing in economics is really very deep. You'll see. Basically, you can tell me what you care about, or I can just look at how you spend your money, and, and then I know what you care about because, you know, that's where the money goes. Right? This is, you know, it's, economics, it's all a scam. <laughs> so take a look. How much money do you give away? Of the money you spend, how do you spend it? When you get some extra, where does that extra money go? Interrogate your finances and let it tell you who does your spending say is the God of your wallet. Okay, so our money's not our own. Second, our time is not our own. Okay, and again, our perspective can't be, well, you know, I, I volunteer this many hours over here, so this time nobody can touch. So here's a good illustration. Um, if if you've ever been a parent of young kids, right, I'm sure you've tried this line. Sorry, Sonny, 
I've already given you 10 hours today. You can feed yourself, change your own diaper going forward, and we can reconsider tomorrow. And then your six-month-old looks up and just says, goo. Right? Well, you know, that continues. It doesn't stop. No point in our life can we say, you know what, finally, this time is for me. So, for example, if you think your retirement is the time for you to finally enjoy yourself or your family or your savings, your retirement is just the next season for you to be poured out, just like parenting young kids or every season of our life. Every season of our life is to lay down for God's service. So, yes, enjoy yourself. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your savings by pouring yourself out for Jesus. So what would be true, to, true about us if we really did hold our time and our money loosely with open hands? Well, first, we would be radically hospitable. So we should open our homes and our hearts regularly and not just to our closest friends, not just to people that we like, not just to people that, you know, I'd really like to get to know that person, but even to difficult people. And, you know, newsflash, it's costly. But one of the most powerful weapons we have against the dominion of darkness is opening our homes and our hearts radically. You know, you read through the Old Testament and the way it talks about welcoming in the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant, the downtrodden. This is one of the greatest declarations of God's kingdom that we can make. So we would be radically hospitable. Second, we would always look for ways to help the needy and stand up for the voiceless. Again, the example we have in all of Scripture is pouring ourselves out in costly ways to pursue justice. And the biblical concept of justice is not just punishing wrongdoers, but it's right relationships in every area of society. And so that means that we should weave our lives into the lives of other image bearers. And again, that takes work. And third, we would be radically committed to sharing the gospel. And importantly, evangelism is not typically a one-shot deal, right? So you don't just turn to somebody and say, hey, turn or burn. A good friend of mine had that on his shirt. You don't just say, hey, turn or burn, and they, you know, I did my job. They can... You know, the task of evangelism is graciously, winsomely, lovingly trying to understand how do I make the gospel beautiful, good news to this person? And that requires a lot of relational sacrifice and faithfully seeking God in every relationship. I was reminded just this morning, you re if you read C.S. Lewis and you see how he, apolo um, how, apology in the sense of, you know, argues for the faith, if you know the backstory, you can see all the conversations that he had before he came to faith with his good friend Tolkien. All the things that he wondered about and the questions that he had, they eventually became, you know, the, you know, he was like probably the greatest apologist of his time for the Christian faith. And it was Tolkien's faithfulness in answering his questions and seeking out. Um, but you might say, well, not everybody has questions that they want to talk to me about. Well, here's another thing. You can just pray for God to bless them. Because that's ultimately we, what we want. We want them to know God, to know God's blessing. 
And uh, so if you really don't know what to do, you can even go to go, try going up to somebody and say, I know you don't believe this, but I think God wants to bless you. And can I pray for you right now to bless you? And most of the time they'd say, sure, why not? I mean, even if they don't believe it, they'll appreciate that you tried. So to recap, are you filling yourself up and pouring out a bit on the sides? Do you spend your life thinking about ways to fill yourself up or about ways to pour yourself out for others? Because the trajectory of our lives everywhere, always, and in everything is to lay down our lives and be poured out. So that's what? Now, you might sort of say, well, that's, that's nice. Why? Why do that? Why be poured out? Well, a theme we've noticed in 2 Timothy is the importance of having the right story for our lives. So to understand why Paul is living a life in which he's being poured out and why we should too, we need to understand the story for Paul's life. And it's helpful to frame Paul's story by looking at what it's not. And there are basically two non-gospel ways of engaging with God. So first, you could believe that God just loves everybody unconditionally. And so this perspective believes that God is a God of love who doesn't care how you live or what you do. So regardless of how you live, this God loves you anyways. What this God wants from you is to be happy and to know that he loves you. But this God doesn't demand anything of you. Be an individual. Radically pursue your identity. Express yourself. That's what this God would want most for you. Be happy and, you know, be you, whatever that means. And if this is your view of God, then what Paul is saying just really doesn't make any sense. Because remember, Paul isn't saying, I'm the type of person who expresses myself through uh, persecution, suffering, trials, shipwrecks, beatings, and imminent execution. Right? Paul isn't being poured out because he looks in his heart and says, that's what I want to do. Right? And importantly, Paul is being poured out. Did you catch that? Paul isn't pouring himself out. God is pouring him out. What? I mean, Paul is living this radical life of sacrifice, service, and love because something supernatural motivates him. And here's the thing. We all want to be better versions of ourselves. There's a reason that self-help books and podcasts are wildly successful. We know we aren't what we want to be. Whether, whether we're Christian or not, we want to be transformed. There's something we want to pour ourselves into. And, you know, let me put this as respectfully as possible. If this is your view of God, this God won't transform you. Because a God that's just up in the sky loving you and everybody, no matter how you live, not expecting anything from you, that won't transform you. It won't motivate you to live a radical life of sacrifice, service, and love. It won't move you to pour out. Because what does it cost this God to love you? And you might say, I mean, what cost? I mean, God just, he just loves. It, it doesn't cost good anything. Okay, fine. But then who cares? Why would love like that transform us? And when you look at the world with open eyes and you see real pain, injustice, and sorrow in the world, what do you do? When you begin to suffer, what do you do? Because this view of God 
this God doesn't really care about injustice. You know, maybe this God has a preference, you know, for one thing or another. But the pain, the suffering, the agony in the world doesn't move this God to act. And as a result, when life gets really hard, this God won't move you either. So you might believe that God is loving, but he's not holy. So second, you might believe the opposite. God is holy. And if you want God to love and bless you, then you need to obey him. And so this perspective believes that God has standards. There are real, absolute moral standards. And if you fail to obey, you are unholy and a sinner. But if you obey, if you're good enough, God will love you and bless you. And you might think from this passage, well, this is obviously Paul's perspective. After all, you know, this one certainly is not, right? Um, and look, Paul has worked hard. He's fought the faith. He's raced hard. But if you think that sounds like I've obeyed and now God loves me, then you've completely missed what Paul is saying. Why? First, Paul, in every single one of his letters, constantly hammers out this theme you are saved by grace. It is a gift. You don't earn it. You're saved by grace, freely given, so that nobody can boast. So do you obey God? Good. Can't boast about it. Do you trust God with your outcomes in life? Good. But you can't boast about it. Do you say your prayers, read your Bible, tithe regularly? Good. These are all good things. You should do them, but they don't save you, and they're not your basis for standing before God. They don't make God love you anymore. Paul has always said our works don't save us. We don't earn our salvation or access to God. Jesus earned our salvation and access, and we receive freely and undeserving. And if your mind is swimming a little and you're like, uh, but... God is holy, right? Yes. Wait a minute, and I'll, I'll explain. I'll bring it together. So, second, Paul says he's being poured out as a drink offering. Now, you probably don't remember all the details of Old Testament worship, but, you know, neither do I. Um, but if Paul believed that he was earning his salvation, that he was earning God's love through his life, he would have said he was being offered up as a sacrifice of atonement, or a burnt offering, or a guilt offering, or a sin offering, but that's not what he says. A drink offering didn't earn forgiveness. So no, Paul isn't motivated to live a life of sacrifice and service and love in order to earn God's favor. And if this is your view of God, that he is holy and will love you only if you obey him, this view won't transform you either. I mean, it will change your behavior, absolutely, because you have absolute moral standards to meet. You need to earn God's love. But that's not transformation. When you obey, you obey this God out of fear. Fear that God won't love you or will punish you. And that's not a new transformed heart. That's not a new mind. You might sacrifice and serve a lot, but any love it's motivated to get God to love you, to ensure that you stay in his good graces. And that's not love. That's selfish. And again, what does it cost this God to love you? To love you, this God requires you obeying. This God is a holy judge that weighs your efforts and decides to love you or not. 
It costs you everything, and it costs this God nothing. What do you do when your willpower just isn't enough? Where do you get power to do more than you can do on your own? And who will forgive you when you fail? Because if you fail this God, you can't run to this one over here. And what do you do when you start to experience suffering? Because if this is your view of God, then you will think, I didn't obey enough. I wasn't good enough. This shouldn't be happening. It's my fault. And we will be miserable comforters to people who are mourning and suffering. Paul's view is neither that God is loving but not holy, nor that God is holy but not loving. So what is it? What motivates Paul, and why does Paul gladly rejoice in being poured out? Paul knows the gospel. He is more wicked and sinful than he could ever imagine, but in Jesus, he is more loved and cherished than he could ever hope. God is infinitely holy, righteous, and just, and God hates evil. And he does not sit back and let evil destroy and ravage his good creation. And Paul knows, I'm part of the problem. I look in my heart, if God is going to destroy evil, he would have to destroy me too. No matter how hard I try, I cannot earn God's love. I can't measure up. But God. But the gospel is that God in Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross, taking on the infinite sin and suffering and evil and injustice in the world and died to forgive us. It cost God an infinite death to earn our forgiveness so that he could draw near to broken rebels. So that when he rids the world of evil, he won't have to get rid of us too. It cost God everything. And he did that when there was nothing in us deserving of God's favor. And because Jesus died and rose again, if you belong to Jesus, nothing can separate you from Christ's love. God in Christ loves you with an unbreaking, never giving up, always and forever love. Not because God doesn't care how you live, but because he cares so much that he paid the cost for you. And as part of that cost, he gives us his Holy Spirit to work in us and to transform us. And Paul knows this is a God that transforms you. God's God's kindness in Christ, God's work in Jesus, move us because God moved. And these things actively empower us because God's grace affects change. When you know that God has already done everything to save you, to love you, and to change you, to be with you forever, then you have nothing to lose, and you have everything to give. And you can never give enough to show your appreciation. Now, Paul knows something else, and it terrifies most of us. If God has saved us by grace, then there is nothing he can't ask of you. If you're saved by grace, then God can ask anything of you. Why? If you earned your salvation, then you would have rights. You know, you'd be like a tax-paying citizen. You paid your dues. You earned your blessings. You did your part. God owes you. You've obeyed, and, and now God doesn't have a claim on you. You would have a claim on him. But if God loves you by sheer grace, 
God doesn't owe you. If he asks anything of you, you have no basis to say, no, God, you can't ask this of me. And if the gospel isn't the overarching story of your life, then this is understandably terrifying, right? How, how could we give God this kind of power, right? You might say, well, no thanks, actually. You know, I'll, I'll just try to earn my salvation and protect myself from this unrestricted access. But Paul knows that whatever God asks of us, God is drawing us closer to himself. We are participating in Christ. We are being made like Christ. We are experiencing more of Christ's love. And it's our delight because we have been transformed by the sacrificial love of Jesus who went to the cross to die for us. This is what it means to be a Christian. Does the cross move you to tears and to worship? Would you rejoice like Paul if God said to you, Join in my sufferings. I've already done it for you. I'll be there with you. I'll suffer with you. You'll experience more of me. This is a small part of what I did to have you. Would you cry into your hands and say, God, whatever it takes to experience more of your glorious presence in my life. And if you're suffering right now, and if you're... and. Let me tell you, this is God's words for you. Seek him and you will experience more of his presence. So that is why Paul is being poured out. So finally, how do we do it? Because I'm sure you've been wondering, you know, at some point reality hits. You know, maybe you start going through the list from earlier and you maybe think, yeah, you know, I... I'd like to be radically generous, or I'd like to be radically hospitable, but your life hasn't changed in the last 20 minutes, right? Your kids aren't less crazy or or better behaved, your health didn't get better, your marriage isn't magically easier, or, you know, maybe you do feel like, hey, you know, I'm in a good position, I can do this, but, you know, just, just wait, because, you know, when you start to pour yourself out, eventually you'll be empty, right? And we know that, and that's why many of us think, I'm going to take drink for myself first. Because once I start pouring out, there's not going to be anything left for me. Now, there's this fascinating story in 2 Samuel chapter 23. It's about the three. It's about King David's three closest, most trusted, most loyal men. You might say, it seems like a little obscure story, but stay with me. You'll, You'll see how that's related. So David and his men are camped in a cave, and the Philistines, the enemy, they are garrisoned at Bethlehem, David's hometown. Right? So the enemies have Bethlehem, and he's hiding in a cave. And David considers his current sad situation, um, much like thinking about solar storms destroying the earth. Um, and he says, how I long to drink from the well in, the, in Bethlehem by the gate. So the three mighty men break through the camp of the Philistines, They draw water out of the well, and they bring it back to David. Can you imagine? And then David does this incredible thing. When he sees what they've done, he refuses to drink. He says, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? And so instead, he takes the water, 
and he pours it out to the Lord. The mighty men broke through enemy lines and risked their lives to draw water for their king whom they love. So David says, what they did is too precious. This water is too precious for David to drink. He doesn't pour it out for himself. He gives it to God. It was a drink offering. He pours it out as a drink offering to God because what those three did was so amazing. David is so moved by their sacrifice and service, by the risk they took to love him, that he pours it out to God. Now, Paul is being poured out. Paul doesn't say he broke through enemy lines and drew water for his king that he's pouring out. Paul doesn't say that he's offering up all the people that he's converted as a drink offering. Paul is the drink offering. And so are you and I. How? Because when the thing that God the Father loved and longed for the most was behind enemy lines, Jesus Christ broke through the enemy camp to win it back. You. Before you took a breath, God was thinking about the future relationship he wanted with you. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb, God knew you and loved you. But to have you, to make you his own, Jesus had to rescue you. You were trapped behind enemy lines, under bondage to sin and death, and Jesus broke through and set you free. But Jesus didn't just rescue you. Jesus himself was poured out as an offering to achieve the salvation for us. Jesus came to earth not at the risk of his life, but at the known guaranteed cost and we were God's enemies, not just behind the lines. But Jesus was poured out on the cross to make us righteous, to make us holy, to make us lovely, to make us his friends. We're lovely because God loves us. For the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross despising its shame. The joy set before him was you, it was his church, it was his people. You are of infinite worth to God. And if you belong to Jesus, if you put your faith in him and receive him as your savior, then streams of living water will flow in you and you will be a wellspring of the Holy Spirit. You will have resources to pour out that you could never imagine. David poured out the water as a drink offering because what the three did was so precious. If God is pouring you out as a drink offering... It is because you are the most precious thing in his creation. So, offer up your lives to him. You can't offer up anything he didn't already earn. And you can't offer anything you won't get back 100-fold. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you were poured out on the cross and that you pour out your spirit now to transform us. God, help us to live lives worthy of our callings as we follow you, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, our friend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.